because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein, joined as usual by Don Watkins in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hey, Alex. And Stefan Henna in Germany. Hello. Hey there. Okay, as I warned you guys before the show, or hopefully it's not too much of a warning, I have a, a little monologue I want to start with, and then we'll, we'll jump into some of the more specific stories. And the subject of the monologue is the Green New Deal, but particularly that the Green New Deal is necessary to address what is called the existential threat of climate change, the existential threat. And you'll hear that term a lot, as I'll, I'll give some quotes in a second. But first of all, what is the, the Green New Deal? There's a question about that because you had this resolution in the Senate that nobody supported, but people are still saying, most of the Democratic presidential candidates are still saying, we support a Green New Deal, even though they didn't want to support it in the exact form that it was given. So what is a Green New Deal? Well, the you can think of it in a couple of ways, but the the big headline things are that it involves outlawing most or all of fossil fuel use and then mandating mostly or exclusively renewable use. Those and usually it's in the form of a giant government project to do this. So it's about outlawing fossil fuel use and mandating renewable energy use. And I should also say at a very rapid pace. So what is the the justification for this? Well, the the two words that keep coming up over and over and over in a way that is is very telling are the words existential and threat. So you have Bernie Sanders. Let's be abundantly clear. Climate change is an existential threat to our country and to the entire planet. Joe Biden. Climate change is an existential threat to our future. Kamala Harris. First of all, climate change is presenting an existential threat to our nation and the world. Nancy Pelosi, we must face the existential threat of our time, the climate crisis. Cory Booker, climate change is an existential threat. Ocasio-Cortez, climate change is an existential threat. If we ignore it, but can be an opportunity if we pursue a Green New Deal. I support the latter. Uh, Gillibrand, we should confront the existential threat of climate change. Jay Inslee, climate change is truly an existential threat for everything we hold dear here. And I mean everything. So what is an existential threat? And does climate change, or more precisely, rising CO2 levels, fit that? So an existential threat can have a couple of interpretations, but the basic idea is it's at least a threat to our existence as we know it and like it. I think of that as, as at a minimum. It's saying we exist a certain way, we like existing this way, and this is a threat that's going to destroy that. Either it's going to kill all of us or most of us, or at least it's going to harm our lives in a way that they're almost unrecognizable from what we knew and liked. Now, when one, one thing to note about this term existential threat is that it's a term that we should be afraid of in two ways. One is we should be afraid of actual existential threats, and there are such things. Certainly in a military context, there's such a thing as a country can take over or, or really destroy another country. So that's a kind of thing uh, to be afraid of. And then theoretically, you can imagine 
you know, maybe it's possible for us to do something environmentally that would be very, very damaging. Certainly there are, uh, you can imagine threats from space like that, like a, a giant meteor. So there's such, it's when we hear existential threat, one, one thing to be afraid of is, is there such a thing? But then the other thing to be afraid of, and maybe this is the thing to be more afraid of, is that existential threat is often used as a means to government getting a lot more power, which itself then becomes an existential threat. So often there's a problem or a minor problem or even a significant problem, but that's not really an existential threat. But then people say, oh, there's an existential threat and our solution is for us to have a lot more power. And, and then that actually becomes an existential threat. So you can take the case of, we've talked about Venezuela. So just schematically, what does Chavez say? I mean, he's basically saying the existing order is an existential threat, particularly the greedy oil industry. So give me Chavez and this government a lot of power, and then we will solve this existential threat. Well, what has actually happened? Whatever was going wrong in Venezuela before, which was plenty, is dwarfed in comparison to what's going on now, because what happened was he took a set of problems and there are problems that exist. And then he made them much, much worse by, by depriving, fundamentally by depriving people of freedom, by depriving uh, their economic lives of freedom in particular, to the point where people in the country could no longer freely produce and trade in, in any meaningful way and where things like the energy system got shut down. And now we have these stories about millions of people fleeing the country and the average citizen losing 24 pounds, not not in a happy or voluntary way and having really bad drinking water and and all kinds of other things. So that really was existential damage to Venezuela that would be very, very hard to recover from. And yet that was, it wasn't the thing people were afraid of wasn't the existential threat. The existential threat was actually the cure to the claimed existential threat. And I think you, you see this all the time in history where the response to a threat is much worse than the threat itself. So you have, for example, people saying, well, DDT is an existential threat. That's a you know, chemical compound that's used as a pesticide. That's an existential threat to our ecosystem. And then you ban DDT, and then that leads to millions of people dying unnecessarily of malaria. So that's that happened. Uh, you have in, in all sorts of different socialist examples, you know, people taking over uh, you know, basically every bad regime that we know about having done horrible things. There were always problems before, but then the person made the problems worse by seizing more power. So just one, one, one thing, when people raise the issue of existential threat, yes, I consider the threat that they're talking about, but I'm usually even more afraid of the expansion of government that they're talking about, because that often ends up being the true existential threat. So now let's let's look at what is the case with rising CO2 levels, um, because the the belief is, well, rising CO2 levels are an existential threat, and therefore that justifies this Green New Deal. And so there are a couple of points about this, but one is that as is so often the case, um, this Green New Deal is not addressing that alleged threat in any way that makes any kind of sense at all. Because 
if rising CO2 levels from our existing energy system are a threat, then the question is, what is the most humane way to deal with that threat? Which means what is the most humane way to uh, lower CO2 levels while still giving as much access to energy as possible? And if we look at the evidence and in general, the principle needs to be we want to use every option at our disposal uh, to do this, including things like CO2 capture, including maybe things like geoengineering. But the most obvious slam dunk thing is use the exactly one type of abundant, reliable power that we know can be affordable and and effective on a scale of billions of people. And even if it is, even if it, it ends up being more expensive than fossil fuel power. It's at least it's at least a doable thing. That's that's nuclear power. And yet, what does the Green New Deal do? Does it say we're going to use all options at our disposal? No, it doesn't say that. It says we're only going to use one option at our disposal. We want to shut down existing nuclear plants. We want to outlaw new nuclear energy. So the most promising thing, the thing that has actually worked to some, to some extent, at least in terms of electricity generation with places like France and I think Sweden, uh, significantly lowering their CO2 emissions, we're going to actually uh, further criminalize and outlaw that. And then we're going to mandate one particular type of technology, uh, renewable energy, which in practice means almost all solar, wind, uh, and batteries. Although the battery, I mean, all of them are just completely built using fossil fuels. Certainly the batteries are. Uh, but we're going to mandate these even though they have this uh, common sense attribute and track record of being unable to deliver abundant, reliable power because they are not reliable fuels. And this is just a common sense thing, but it's it's something that nothing has overcome. And as we've talked about on the show before, it's because you, if you have an unreliable fuel, then you need some form of life support. And the life support can either be a reliable fuel or it can be a battery. But for the batteries to provide true life support, uh, you would need batteries that were 100 plus times cheaper than batteries are today. Because if you tried it today to back up just one day of the global energy supply would be $100 trillion, which is more than everyone in the world and every business in the world makes uh, in terms of, of money. So you've got this thing where this has the classic signs of using an alleged existential threat to impose an agenda that's going to do little or nothing about that threat, but then cause enormous other problems. So it's it's a giveaway that they're not simply trying to find the most efficient way to deal with this threat. They've come up with the most with just the most inefficient way of dealing with this alleged threat. Uh, imaginable. So that's so far we have that w whenever someone raises an existential threat, we have to be a, uh, afraid of the existential threat that might arise from the deprivation of freedom. And then in this case, their their denial not only of fossil fuel freedom but of nuclear freedom illustrates that their folk that their true concern is not actually addressing the threat that they're talking about. But now let's talk about. Is this actually an existential threat? And the, the basis of arguing that rising CO2 levels is a threat are that, remember, an existential threat is a threat to life as we know it. It's saying that life as we know it 
depends on a safe and stable climate. And the idea is we're endangering that safe and stable climate by changing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from 0.03%, which was allegedly perfect, to 0.04%. And then it's heading upward slowly, but still upward toward 0.05%. And the idea is, well, life as we know it depends on the safe and stable climate and including a safe and stable level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And the problem with this is just this is completely untrue because we've had a with the safe and stable level of CO2 we've had in the atmosphere for a long time, almost all of that time, life was really, really awful. I mean, if just you look at the the hockey stick graphs that we show sometimes of life, you have for cent, you know, for thousands of years, life expectancy is 30, income is basically non-existent, the planet can only support you know, a billion people or less. And just everything, everything is bad for most people. So, so life, the, the planet that we live on, we talk about the planet is so nice, but the planet is a very high threat place to live. It's threatening us all the time. And it's a very low resource place to live. We have very little in terms of usable resources. And Part of that is, is you know, a big part of the threat is is climate related. The climate is not safe and stable. It's very dynamic and dangerous. And lots of people uh, die because either the climate is, they're actively hurt by climate danger or the climate isn't doing what they want. It's not giving them the weather that they want. And they're super at the mercy of climate. And even through, we have data, even through the early 1930s, you have many years where millions of people around the world are dying just from climate related causes. So just from things like storms and flood and heat and cold, leaving aside just dying of general poverty uh, when things like infant mortality and lack of food, uh, lack of medical care, et cetera, et cetera. So this idea that our existence as we know it depends on some perfect uh, climate situation is is definitely not true the climate the climate by itself leads to an existence just by itself gives us an existence that is very um unpleasant so in reality what makes our existence as we know it possible today well what made our existence great was not the friendliness of nature which has never existed, but the empowerment of human beings. And the key attribute that we acquired is we got, we had, we acquired a transformative capability over nature. So we could, we could transform the threats in nature in such a way as we, we could neutralize them. So we could take a storm and we could figure out, even if we couldn't stop the storm uh, in its origin, we could stop the storm with a sturdy home or even by fleeing the storm if we really needed to. So we, we figured out how to transform and you know, we could take bacteria and either in our body, we could figure out how to, how to neutralize it or we could neutralize it outside our body through different kinds of sanitation systems. We, we figured out how to transform the planet, both to deal with threats, but also to create resources, to turn the planet into a place that went from having very small amounts of usable resources to very large amounts. So that's, that's what we did. We we acquired a transformative capability. And how did we get that transformative capability? Well, we got that transformative capability through machines. We figured we figured out we were able to design machines that could transform our environment. 
and then you probably guess this is coming. Those machines are totally possible only because of processes that can produce plentiful power for those machines. And that's what we really have today. We, we are empowered by these amazing machines that can do everything we want. I mean, they can grow food, they can protect us from nature, they can cure disease, but they all depend in one form or another on, we can think of it as plentiful power on demand. And that, that can be in the form of heat on demand. It can be in the form of propulsion on demand, like for vehicles. And then it can, of course, be in the form of electricity on demand. So that is what's actually, what actually is the root of our existence is, is abundant, reliable power. We can call, also call it plentiful power on demand. And Thus, when we're talking about proposals, one of the things to really be aware of is what is this going to do to our ability to have this plentiful power? Because if we don't have plentiful power, then we then that is an existential disaster. Then we go back to living very nasty, brutish, short lives. The planet can't support very many people. And this brings us to... Uh, the Green New Deal. So Green New Deal claims that that even though we have all this plentiful power today, there's an existential threat because by increasing CO2 from 0.03% to 0.04%, we've created warming, which creates certain climate changes, which are going to overwhelm us. And this is a claim. It's something worth looking into, but this is a claim that's been being made for 40 years in one form or another. And it, it just always proves to be completely exaggerated. And what keeps happening is that they exaggerate the amount of warming, but also maybe even more importantly, they completely neglect our ability to, um, to neutralize any added climate danger by having all of this power. And so what we, we often on this show, or maybe not on the show, but in our work cite the statistic of climate related deaths, where the number of people who die from climate related causes keeps going down and down and down. So in the 30s, it was in the millions per year, and now it's in the thousands or sometimes tens of thousands per year. And it's not that nature has given us such a safe climate now, although it doesn't seem to have changed that much in terms of its hostility to us one way or the other. But what we've done is we've made ourselves safe. We've built a very resilient human environment that is, is progressively climate proof. And that's that's really what's keeping us safe. So it's just simply it's simply not true that this byproduct of CO2 emissions that's come from all this abundant, reliable power from fossil fuels has is this existential threat. Um, at most, it's a concern that should be watched and it's a concern that should be addressed. The only legitimate way to address it is by finding other forms of abundant plentiful uh, of abundant reliable power that uh are also affordable to a lot of people that's the only way to go so you can do that through pursuing nuclear power you can do that through maybe figuring out uh low cost ways of capturing co2 maybe even ultimately profitable ways of capturing co2 but you have to figure out a way to if you're going to be dealing with something on the level of co2 which is not nearly as significant as access to power you need to you need to figure out a way to deal with it in a way that doesn't compromise uh, access to power. And then the Green New Deal is unfortunately doing the exact opposite because in by calling this byproduct of CO2 an existential threat and ignoring the fact that the that the abundant power 
from the from fossil fuels is actually an existential resource. They're proposing to outlaw all known and proven processes to produce plentiful power, including the best non-carbon ones, especially nuclear. So this is this is really the ultimate kind of existential threat because really there's there's one this one technology at the core of our existence, which is which are these fossil fuel-based processes to produce plentiful power. I know this is a lot of peas, but maybe that'll make it more memorable. But we have these these fossil fuel-based processes, and those are those play such a, an amazingly positive role in our lives. And we have people saying, well, let's outlaw all of those processes. And then on top of that, let's outlaw the most promising non-carbon processes, which are those are still would need a ton of evolution to fulfill the role that fossil fuels are playing. And then let's mandate the least promising, completely unproven or even often proven bad uh, processes that involve solar and wind. Let's let's do that. And but let's claim the moral high ground since we're dealing with an existential threat. So the summary in terms of existential threat is that fossil fuels, if you look at if you look at fossil fuels objectively, if you look at the 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 full impact of fossil fuels, not just its negatives, but also its positives, fossil fuels and fossil fuel power is not an existential threat. It's actually an existential resource. And the threatening that existential resource is the real existential threat. So all of these people, Cory Booker, Gillibrand, Inslee, all of these people, these are exactly like um, Chavez and everyone else who, what they do is they they take an issue and then they claim that it's an existential threat and then they impose and then they expand their own power in a way that's a true existential threat. But this, you know, the, the existential threat they're talking about in the U.S., is even far greater than what Chavez did in Venezuela because it would make us worse off and it would be starting from a place of others uh, being better off. So that's that's my view. Fossil fuels are not an existential threat. They're an existential resource and the Green New Deal is an existential threat. Any thoughts from you guys? I mean, one thing that I've found in in looking into the Green New Deal is that it's often like the the... Um, how dictatorial it is is vi- just completely glossed over. I mean, this is declaring uh, more than 10 million jobs just in the oil and gas industry directly. It's declaring, no, we're going to take those away. It's declaring that trillions of dollars in capital in in machinery and technologies that people have built up over time with a lot of difficulty and cost, we're going to just destroy the value of that. It's Set aside the fact that they also are going to take over healthcare, they're going to change transportation, they're going to change education, is so. Um, I, I mean, it's hard to overstate the the way in which this is an unprecedented change and really uh, of a, like an open call for the destruction of wealth that uh, that we're facing, and to the point where I think people don't take it seriously it's oh well that you know it's really just a it's uh it's a bold plan as they would say it's more about an aspiration for some amazing future but in reality all it amounts to is giving people a lot of power to destroy uh an enormous amount of wealth 
by taking away an enormous amount of freedom. And like that should be chilling. One small observation related to that, which I totally agree with what you said, is it's revealing about the nature of the unreliables, or what people often call the renewables, solar and wind, that they're admitting that they need a complete government takeover to make these things happen. Because you often hear, oh, it's inevitable that solar and wind uh, will will take over. But yet they're, they're recognizing, then why don't they just create some sort of market or just make sure that that all of the problems are out of the way? for these things to take over. It's because they're not actually working. And you see around the world, you have sometimes where they'll scale it up some, but then then they run into these reliability problems or the, the subsidies run out and then they have to, to scale back. So there is this, they're, they're acting like, oh yeah, this is obviously the best technology, but we need to completely take over the energy industry in order for it to take hold versus versus oh no just let it let it take hold let it win quickly and then as, as as it's producing all of this super cheap energy then people will increasingly use it Stefan, any thoughts from you yeah i think it has a similar core fallacy uh, as does the precautionary principle which simply declares okay one side is a is the uh, absolute catastrophe and the other side is avoiding that catastrophe. So everything we do to avoid that must be something positive, must have a positive value. But in reality, of course, you know, every action and even non-action has consequence and you have to consider that carefully. So you can't just say we avoid X and um, that has a positive value. You can also say, oh, by doing so, the way we do it has an even even worse catastrophe as a consequence. So there's this absolutely no mention and no consideration of that. One, one thing that should be taught in the educational system is just the existential threat of statism. Just that that is always something to be afraid of, is the government saying that you do not own your life and that we can forbid competition, we can forbid choice, we can deprive you of property rights. That's actually the biggest thing. That even government you know, governments violating the rights of their own citizens are even worse than governments doing that in war. And yet all of the the fear, there's some fear about war, but the biggest fear is about what will happen if we leave people too free. And then so anything we do to oppose what free people are doing, that's considered a very morally safe position to take. All right, let's jump into some of the more specific stories. Don, what's your first story this week? Uh, so entrepreneur and venture capitalist Peter Thiel, who endorsed your book, by the way, uh, he had this line about how you know they promised us flying cars, instead we got 140 characters. And it's part of this overall view that outside of the realm of bits in the world of atoms, we've really seen this kind of slowing down of progress. Certainly there wasn't this feeling uh, that there was 50 years ago of things are just dramatically changing every decade. And I think in some industries, we actually have seen real transformative technology in the oil and gas industry, I think is a perfect example of that. But one of the, it, there's apparently uh, reports that Uber, Boeing, and other companies are actually on the verge of what are being called vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, VTOLs, 
which is ridiculous because what they really are is flying cars and there's no better terminology than flying cars for flying cars. But in any case, what was striking to me is that the first time I encountered this being reported in legitimate uh, news publications, the LA Times and Axios, um, is all in the context of, well, what's this going to do to CO2 emissions? And people worried that, well, if the cars are traveling more than 11 miles, then from a climate standpoint, it's great. It actually has fewer emissions than people driving around in automobiles. But most commutes, uh, or, I'm sorry, over 22 miles, but most commutes average about 11 miles. And that doesn't make sense from a climate standpoint. And so there's all these worries that like people will start using it for commutes. And the idea that your first reaction to like realistic promise of flying cars within a decade or two is how much CO2 is striking to me. And the fact that it's just taken so lightly of, oh, well, we wouldn't want to use them if they would have some more emissions for our daily commutes. When like, if you think about the thing that day to day actually has one of the most major impacts on a person's ability to flourish, just spending all of your time stuck in traffic. I used to be out uh, in Southern California where you are, Alex, and had to commute for 45 minutes a day to go five miles each way. And uh, I guess it was 10 miles, but like it would be such a transformative benefit to be able to take that away from most people and give them more hours of their week back. And it is just this kind of laser-like focus on what's the climate impact of everything we do, not just as a consideration for evaluating the full context of something, but as the consideration for how we should use a technology, I find so astonishing and just not how at all how we should be thinking about it. Kevin, what would when when we're in periods of technophobia, there's a certain amount of gratitude that I have for the the past achievements that maybe wouldn't be allowed today. So you think about just air travel and how would that be received today? It's like, oh, well, we can fly. Like on the one hand, we can fly. But on the other hand, it's going to, every time we fly, it's going to add a little bit more CO2 to the atmosphere. Like, well, maybe we shouldn't fly. And my view is you'd really have to show me something with CO2 in the atmosphere that would make me not want to fly. Because I would, like if you gave me, human beings can fly and the average temperature is five degrees warmer, I'll totally take it. And what, you know, what, there's a lot of different ways of dealing with temperature, but I do not want to deal with a world where human beings cannot fly. And, and I want to deal with a world where we can fly a lot more easily. Stefan, what's your first story this week? Uh, Chevron last week came forward and uh, announced that it will buy Anadarko Petroleum in a $33 billion deal. And this is uh, the biggest, in international uh, affairs, even the biggest deal since three years in oil and gas. And uh, Anadarko, of course, has a portfolio in oil and gas, but the most important thing is their um, acreage in the Permian Basin, which is uh, part of America's uh, shale revolution, in effect, the most productive uh, basin right now. And... uh, so to me, that's a very positive sign that, uh, you know, the investment in unconventional oil and gas in America is going to continue. So bigger players are now investing and sort of sucking up the smaller players that have been in the experimental phase of, uh, 
of uh, fracking and horizontal drilling in the last decade. And uh, I think that's a, that's a good sign. That's a positive thing. It makes a lot of sense because larger oil and gas developers, of course, have economies of scale and synergies, and they have better access to pipeline infrastructure and so on. So that makes a lot of sense. It might even put downward pressure on the cost and this will solidify uh, America's oil and gas production for decades. And uh, one of the remaining questions to me, and that's a very sad thing, is that so much of this now depends on, on politics. So who will win the next election? What will be uh, the next policy, you know, like the Green New Deal that we talked about and so on. And this is, this is really the major threat. So the, the problem with oil and gas is not like, will we run out of it or how much is there or can we access it? It's, it's actually which politicians will sit in the uh, US Congress. Yeah, that is, I don't know what, what to add to that. That is definitely the case. And I mean, we just, the more and more we have this idea that power should be concentrated in the state and then that's that's the default then you just have this this phenomenon where so much of progress depends on is is the person in government now okay with you doing what you think is best and then so you just have you can't just think about what you think is best and what's ethical you have to think about what is today's status politician think and then what will tomorrow's think and what are their chances of getting elected and it's again a case where the the industries that are hurt most by this are the more are the industries in the future so with nuclear has had the the misfortune of coming into existence really with the modern environmental movement and so so much of it's the nuclear industry's existence has just been how to deal with the fact that government is super hostile and thus even if you have the greatest idea in the world you probably won't be allowed to do it or at least won't be allowed to do it uh, with the speed that would make you a good investment and the destruction that occurs there is, is just impossible to calculate but it is it is massive don what's your next story so my next story gets right to this question of the importance of who's going to be in charge uh after the next election. So um, presidential hopeful Elizabeth Warren just came out with a public lands plan. And it's not so much of a plan as so much of it is, is like a mini Green New Deal where she wants, to, she's, she says in day one, she's going to institute a total moratorium on new federal oil and gas leases and instead focus on using public lands for, among other things, building new renewable energy uh, projects on public lands. And part of what I found interesting is she had a whole big essay or diatribe defending this. And she says, today, those lands are under threat. The Trump administration is busy selling off our public lands to the oil, gas, and coal industries for pennies on the dollar, expanding fossil fuel extraction that destroys pristine sites across the country while pouring an accelerant on our climate crisis. And there's just this idea like the way that, and she's not unique in this, but portraying it as if there's these companies doing something like renegades and reaping a bunch of rewards. And it just completely leaves out the fact that they're creating a product that we choose and that we benefit from. And that if we did not choose to use and benefit from their product, then there wouldn't be all these profits. And leaving out that crucial part of the narrative, like that is something you'd have to incorporate in any actual assessment of 
is you know their their use of public lands a valuable use um and the and more broadly is what they're doing good but it's just they're portrayed as these renegade people stomping all over us and that way that the people who want to shut them down through you know the wave of a pen um don't have to actually account for what will that do to our standard of living because what will actually happen in most of these places public land sounds really nice but i mean most of this is barren land that nobody uses for anything and that's actually being turned into an incredibly productive use and and her contribution is to say no we're going to shut that down and not even talk about the costs yeah there's some line in atlas shrug that i wish i could remember um exactly but it talks about how despoiling ability is the motivation of certain kinds of moral codes you just think about like elizabeth warren how much has she benefited in her life, including just being alive this long from oil, gas, coal? And then how much is she using it now? And she is choosing to do that. She could go live in a poor country or um, or choose not to live, but certainly she could, you know, she could live a destitute life, which is what living without fossil fuels has meant historically for most people and, and would still mean today for most people. But no, she wants she wants all the benefits of uh, that the industry provides today and then also all the benefits and the status of claiming that she's going to be the one to replace the industry and there's there seems to be no worry whatsoever about hey what if i'm wrong what if what if these plans don't work i, I just be i i might even vote for someone if they just expressed a moment of of concern that maybe their plan wouldn't work and thus outlawing something that plays such a major role in our life might be very, very reckless. Stefan, what's your next story? I want to talk about the fundamental ethics of Dr. Michael Mann. And this is the Dr. Michael Mann of uh, hockey stick fame. And if you want to know uh, the details about the uh, hockey stick in climatology, which essentially says that, you know, until very recently, under human influence, uh, the climate didn't actually change for the last about 1,000 years. And we have a previous power hour with uh, Ross McKittrick uh, that is named aptly the man who debunked the hockey stick, uh, if you want to know the details about that. So I want to talk now about uh, Michael Mann receiving an ethics award from the Villanova University Ethics Program in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And uh, I will introduce that with a quote from the director of the ethics program. And he says, the ethics program of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences recognizes Dr. Mann for his professional courage, his scientific work, his commitment to defend science against those who seek to politicize the findings of science, and his recognition that scientists do their work in the context of a global and independent reality. Uh, and this is, you know, to people who are familiar with the work of uh, Michael Mann, probably uh, a really bad joke, uh, at least in my opinion. So, and uh, so one of the things that Dr. Mann is involved in, for example, is an eight-year defamation lawsuit against author and commentator Mark Stein, who criticized Mann for his role in uh, creating the hockey stick manufacturing the hockey stick uh, based on uh, paleoclimatological data that is uh, subpar in quality 
And uh, so, but putting that aside, putting, and, and so much of the con, uh, um, sorry, much of uh, the behavior of Michael Mann, uh, if you know this, he comes online in, in the media and, uh, you know, declares uh, something speculative as scientific fact and, and gives, you know, this opinion article in a, in a newspaper about like how this hurricane or this flood is actually completely man-made and uh, how uh, climate change is becoming this absolute catastrophe. And he is uh, absolutely not open and honest in my view about the uh, actual scientific certainty of, of claims like that. So I don't, I don't think that's a conduct of a, of a real ethical scientist. But what caught my eyes earlier this year in this context is a tweet by Dr. Mann. And I think it reveals something about his actual underlying ethics. And I'll just read the tweet, the tweet here. Climate change is simply one axis in a multidimensional problem that is environmental sustainability. They all stem from the same problem. Too many people using too many natural resources. We probably already exceed, exceed the planet's carrying capacity by a factor of eight. And this, of course, reveals sort of an underlying Methuselian worldview in which the human beings are the destroyers of Earth. And the more human beings there are, the, the wealthier they are, which is reflected by our resource use, of course, uh, the worse the planet is off and we need to protect that. And, you know, if you think this through, the implication is that we need actually fewer humans, you know, at least by a factor of eight. You know, we, we need to sort of cull the herd. We need to get rid of humans. And this is if you look at the history, you you mentioned earlier, Alex, the, the actual hockey sticks of human progress. The more human beings on the planet, the better we were off historically, right? So there, there's a discrepancy between empirical reality and what, what this uh, ethical view of Dr. Mann is, is uh, implicating. Yeah, that, that I'm actually surprised that he, he said that on Twitter because... One thing about Michael Mann is he is very calculated, usually. So reading his books, he has a very specific way that he wants to come across, and he engineers every little thing to come across that way, at least when he is totally in control of himself. And I just see that in his books and in his other statements. He just, he'll describe himself as a pointy-headed scientist. So the idea is just, yeah, I was just this scientist and I was just looking at data and I discovered this thing and I had no political ambitions and I had no specific philosophical views. And then, oh, by the way, there are eight times too many people on the planet. And the planet is this like finite, you know, spaceship type thing that has a certain amount of resources. You just see, oh, well. There you go. There's the perfect planet premise right there. And oh, maybe that that informs all of his predictions and then also his whole methodology that I've mentioned on a previous episode of ignoring all of the ignoring how, as I'm talking about today, fossil fuels are an existential resource in all the areas that he's claiming climate will make worse. So climate will make water worse. It'll make food worse. But I completely forget that fossil fuels are the reason why these things are as good as we know them to be in the first place. Let's do one more story. Don, what's your final story today? Um, so final story is uh, I was speaking at an oil and gas association in Pennsylvania, uh, I guess last week, and found out about a story that 
I had not heard of and is largely flown under the radar here. But um, our our go new governor had signed an executive order, tr basically setting uh, greenhouse gas emissions, lowering them by twenty six percent by twenty twenty five, eighty percent by twenty fifty, and on top of that, now there's environmentalist attorneys associated with the Clean Air Council petitioning the Pennsylvania Environmental Hearing Board, which is like the main environmental uh, regulatory board, for imposing cap and trade without any input from the legislature. So not let's pass a law, but what they've done is say, hey, look, the Pennsylvania Constitution says that the people have a right to clean air and uh, that, and, and that you're empowered to adopt rules to control and ensure that there's no air pollution. And that gives you all the power you need to have a cap and trade program that'll make us carbon neutral. They suggest a plan that makes us carbon neutral by 2052, I think it is. And the and are pushing for the, that, no, this should just be imposed, something that will be absolutely transformative, particularly given that Pennsylvania um, is you know, one of the is a very important oil and gas producer and oil and gas plays a very crucial role in the economy, particularly in the areas around Pittsburgh. And the and the, they deliberately have not tried to make this a public issue with a lot of public attention and debate, but just want to impose it. And I think it's, it's, is revealing um, and like, you know, troubling that given that every time that they've actually tried to push through in a very democratic way any of these significant restrictions on CO2 energy, they failed. It's now, well, then we just have to do it at any price and at any cost. Uh, and ideally without anybody even being aware that we're doing it. Yeah, the, the clean air thing is, I mean, really, especially in the context of a state, saying, yeah, our our mandate to have a certain level of air quality, like that enables us to regulate CO2, which just has absolutely nothing to do with your actual air quality. So it's just, but people think that, well, it's obviously a moral thing to reduce CO2 emissions. And therefore, yeah, we can stretch the law. And it's not like these laws are very clear in the first place, but it's, so much of it is just this moral high ground that people have. All right. Well, that is not the most exciting story to end on, but uh, in terms of, well, yeah, go ahead. And let me let me do a thirty second one because this is just pure fun. Uh, which is that uh, Toronto Premier Doug Ford just tweeted out that they've instituted stickers on gas pumps and a line item in their natural gas bills where they're showing. Uh, that Ontario's government, in order to make transparent um, the costs of the carbon tax, is just going to show in the areas where people are paying for energy how much they're paying for the carbon tax. And that's the kind of thing that, that I like. It goes in the other direction, making people as informed as possible about these policies rather than trying to um, make impose them without uh, providing clarity for people about their impact. All right. Good note to end on. Good job. Doug Ford. And yeah, we, that, that is a great policy to have, and it's a pretty easy one to argue for. So let's see some U.S. politicians doing that. Okay, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed the different stories. Hope you more appreciate that fossil fuels are an existential resource and the Green New Deal is an existential threat. 
If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email us. I'm at alex at industrialprogress.net. Don is don at industrialprogress.net. Stefan is S-T-E-F-F-E-N at industrialprogress.net. I don't mention my Facebook often. If you want to follow me on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy to subscribe to my mailing list. Maybe the most important thing, if you want all kinds of updates, go to alexepsteinlist.com. That's alexepsteinlist.com. Next week, we will be back with a lot more great topics. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.